0: Let me begin reading the second lesson. For the benefit of our visitors who are here, and there are many this morning, we have been studying uh, this past week in the Montreal Church events that took place during the week that literally changed the world. The world has never been the same since and never will be until Jesus comes back again. And uh, as a result of it, last Sunday we started by thinking about what is called Palm Sunday. We are told in the Gospel of John that when Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy into the city of Jerusalem, he rode in on the on the on the fold the coat of a donkey, a little donkey on which no one had ever yet sat. I've often thought what a wonderful, blessed little donkey that was to be able to bear the Son of God into the city of Jerusalem that day. Pilate had come in with his 100 soldiers in front of him and 100 soldiers in back of him, but nobody crowded the streets to to shout to uh, Pilate words of praise. They did not like him. The great Herod Antipas, Cruel despot that he was, had also come in pomp and glory into Jerusalem that Passover week. But no one came out to meet him either. But when the lowly Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom God had specially anointed to fulfill all that the Scriptures had written, who had made the blind to see and the lepers cleansed and raised the dead, when Jesus came, the crowds thronged the street, and they shouted out a rare Aramaic word, Hosanna. And you remember that word means us." And they shouted out the Haliel, the 113th to 118th Psalm, the Psalms that predicted the coming of Messiah. They shouted out to him, Blessed is the son of David, David their greatest and best king. And Jesus received all of this praise to himself. The, the scribes and the Pharisees thought it was blasphemous, and they turned to Jesus and said, Why don't you make these children stop saying these things? And Jesus said if they should hold their peace, then the stones would cry out. Well, by the end of the week, by Thursday night of that week, the people did hold their peace. They ceased to shout their praises and they turned instead to shout crucify, crucify him because they misunderstood what it meant that their ruler and king had come. And then he went to the cross and this is where we pick up the story. It's after he has died on the cross. In verse 57 of chapter 27 of the Gospel according to Matthew, And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. This man came to Pilate, and he asked for the body. And Pilate ordered that it be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in a new tomb which he had had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, that would have been a Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. That would have been strictly against the law. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. lest his disciples come and steal him away and say to the people that he is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. You can imagine how angry that must have made Pilate to suggest that a dead man would be brought back to life. So Pilate shouts out to these Jews who have their own temple soldiers. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, late on the Sabbath, As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. The stones cry out. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stones and sat upon it. I have an old German friend who usually calls me every Easter. And he says, Tell the children, that the angel rolled the stone away from the door and sat on it and laughed (laughs) because they could not keep the Son of God. And his appearance was like lightning, this angel, and his garment white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him. Uh, J.B. Phillips says the guards collapsed for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was laid, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of him. And they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, but take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they shall see me. And now while they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders in the council, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and they did as they had been instructed in this story, was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. On a hill outside of Jerusalem, a carpenter from Nazareth condemned by a Roman procurator by the name of Pilate of Judea, and the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, died upon a cross. Four historians of the time soberly reported that he was buried. They also reported that on the third day, the carpenter, Jesus, rose from the dead. And since that first Easter, his followers have defied all reasons to proclaim that the Jew of Nazareth was the Son of God, who by dying for man's sin reconciled the world to its creator and returned to life in his glory. Christianity has always been content to stand or fall by this paradox, this mystery, this unfathomable truth. If Christ has not been raised, wrote St. Paul to the young church of Corinth, Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. Now in our 20th century, one of the strongest contenders for the resurrection of Christ and its significance was the Swiss-born theologian Karl Barth. His name rhymes with heart. He has since gone to be with the Lord. Carl Barth said this, that the gospel account of the resurrection may seem to some people to be inconsistent, but he refuses to make the mystery more palatable to human reason by suggesting, as did the big theologian Frederick Strauss of the 19th century, that the story of the resurrection of Jesus was a myth. Instead, Carl Barth argued that the subject of this unique event is God himself, not man. Only God can know the full truth of his own history. Man's only road to understanding divine history is through faith. Faith in the reality and truth of what the evangelist describes. Do you want to believe in the living Christ, said Carl Barton. If you do, we may believe in him only if we believe in his corporal, that's his fleshly, resurrection. This is the content of the New Testament. We are always free to reject it, but not to modify it, nor to pretend that the New Testament teaches something else. We may accept it, or we may refuse it, but we may not change it. Karl Barth has said a great thing. He has said a great thing because the Old Testament will take you to its heroes of the faith and show you the tomb of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They will show you Rachel's tomb. They will show you the tomb of King David. But when we cut to the pages of the New Testament, no one there wishes to enshrine and show you this tomb because it was empty, not even to support the important tourist industry that's there to this day. You see, the earliest Christians knew that if you see one empty tomb, you've seen them all. It was empty. And the astounding thing to them, the thing that caused the the very earth beneath them to reel and to rock and to make them stagger almost like drunk men was the fact that the one with whom they had walked for three years was no less than God in human flesh. And this is important. This is important for your salvation. It's important because it is an affirmation of all those claims that the man that rode the little donkey in Jerusalem received the week before. That when they said the Messiah, the Son of David, had come, this resurrection from the dead proved it. That when they said one greater than Judas Maccabeus who would cleanse and purify Israel with their palm branches, this resurrection from the dead proved that when they said there was one who would not only bear their iniquity, their grief, and their sorrow. From the Old Testament fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, this resurrection from the dead proves. And while I'm at this point, let me point out something that I wrote in a letter to a friend just this morning, going through statistics. If you study Isaiah 53 carefully, those words that speak there about bearing our iniquities and our sins also speak in a way that's better than that. The King James translators had trouble with that iniquities and sins because what was happening was that our incurable disease was being cured. That a healing was taking place. And that this takes place when forgiveness comes. And that forgiveness could only come when the Son of God died on the cross and bore in His own body all our sins on the tree. It's important for you to grasp this Because you're haunted by guilt. And the only answer to guilt is grace. And the only one big enough to absorb it and take it away is that one who bore the scoffing root and in your place stood condemned and in your place died upon the cross and he soaked it up. In that dreadful moment, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And God validated it all when he was raised in mighty power in this marvelous resurrection from the dead. We are told that they came early in the morning. One of the gospel writers tells us that they came while it was still dark. Some of us seem to wake up early every Easter Sunday. We wake up early and we think about this. And these women who went early that morning saw it was dark. And the world was dark before Christ came back from the dead. The world was dark and defeated and frustrated by sin and all manner of broken relationships. And probably the best way to illustrate it is from an old story from history. There was a great battle that took place, if I remember correctly, on June the 15th, 1815, the Battle of Waterloo. The forces of Wellington had engaged the fort of Napoleon at a battlefield called Waterloo, and there they were fighting. They were fighting, and the reports that were to come from the battlefield had to be signaled by a semaphore flags. One man had to take a telescope and look and watch for the semaphore to spell out the results of the encounter. And then he had to semaphore the signals on to the next man. And so it would come across France onto the English Channel from one ship to the other to the white cliffs of Dover and then finally brought to the city and then into London. They had no tele, no electronic communication. And do you know what happened when the semaphore signal began to come through and they could read out the words one by one, the alphabet, it said, Wellington defeated, and then a cloud moved in, and the word came to the city of London, and the people went around, all bent over with grief, Wellington defeated of their hopes and dreams and their young men destroyed and crushed in the carnage of battle and all lost. But then the sun came out and it burned away the fog, and the semaphore signals began to come in again but this time they were complete and clear. Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo and it meant victory. Is ours. And this is what happens here. They went early and it was dark. And the signal that comes back is that God has defeated the enemy through the Lord Jesus Christ here. Here in his resurrection from the dead. He was crucified, dead, and buried. The creed tells us in no uncertain words. Because we have to deal with the ugly problems of pain and suffering, Last night, a conscientious young intern called me on the phone to report a man who was dying with cancer, very painful cancer. One of the patients, he had the responsibility for looking after How he had tried to treat him with one medication after the other, but it's all late. What else can we do?
1: We can remember
0: to pray to God. We can remember the one who heals all our incurable diseases and who has an ultimate healing for it all. And we can remember that the most important healing comes from the cross. We may get a respite from some disease here, but one day, through what was accomplished for us on the cross and in empty tombs, God will see to it that all things are made perfect and right And that new Jerusalem that he speaks of will be there. And we will know that healing. That's what we need most to to know about. I want to speak about four things that happened. What happened at the cross and that the who made us. The Lord of heaven and earth. When we say in the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. When we read in Colossians, that all things were created by Him and through Him. When we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ is one with God the Father, we can see the importance of the fact that the Creator God will humble Himself and come into this world to redeem His rebellious creature and to restore Him again. He will make Him well, and He alone can make Him what He ought to be. One of the most important paintings in the whole history of art is in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. It's a priceless painting by Michelangelo and it depicts uh, the creation uh, in, in panels. And the creation panel on one side of the cre- great creation panel, he had man marvelously made and created. It's a magnificent portrayal of man. He is naked, he has nothing in his hands, He has a continuity with the earth, and he stretches one hand above his head toward the clouds yearning for something more that seems to be missing. In other words, Michelangelo's man, and this is the profound psychological and theological insight into Michelangelo's portrayal, is knowingly incomplete because he yearns for more than just a physical existence more than just being a marvelously created, healthy specimen. His hand is stretched out above his head. And on the other side of that great panel is God. In his own freedom, God is reaching across. And you know from that very famous part of the painting, the two hands are to touch. And the painting presents the moment just prior to God's touch of Michelangelo's man. For Michelangelo is showing that man cannot reach God, but God can reach man and touch him. And when he does, and only when he does, does man become fully human. Man is not himself until God touches him and recreates him. This is what Jesus taught a member of the Sanhedrin who went with Joseph of Arimathea to beg for his body, that he would have a new birth and be what he ought to be. And when we have that reconciliation made, our broken relationships begin to mend. Now let me speak very, very practically about do you ever get mad at home? I mean angry, unpleasant, and unhappy with your wife or with your husband or with your children or with your employer or your employees or with your roommate or someone else. And you're estranged. And in your house, bedlam seems to reign. Well, it isn't cured when the father walks in and says, all right, now I want the war to stop. Stop, I want all of you to love one another right now. Snap out it. It just won't work that quick. That's why Holy Week is a holy week. That's why it takes Palm Sunday. That's why it takes the teaching and cleansing of the temple. He had cleansed that temple before, but evil has a way of coming back and it had to be cleansed again. That's why he had to take them into Monday, Thursday and that night in which he washed their dirty feet and in which he broke the bread and gave it to them. And, and the emphasis of, is upon the verb, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. God takes the initiative. He touches. He heals. And only then can the hateful feelings be resolved and go away. You'll never know the forgiveness of sin until you can swallow. Swallow your own wrath and let the other person go scot-free. I used to listen to Dr. E. Stanley Jones, preacher, great Methodist preacher who died a few years ago, He was a missionary at one time to India. And during one Holy Week season, he had a man who came to him, who wanted to make a confession to him and to get his life reconciled to God again because of something that had happened in his family. This man was an official of the Indian government. His work often took him away from home. He'd be away from home a few weeks at a time, and he had gotten into an affair with another woman. And he had committed immorality and adultery against his wife. He had broken his relationship with God. He had broken his relationship with his marriage vow. He had broken his relationship there. He came back home, one time riding on the train, and it was nearing Holy Week. And he began to think of the hypocritical life that he was living and the play-acting that he was going through in church and the ugly sin that was in him. And he knew that he had to make a confession of what he had done to his wife. His wife loved him and trusted him to the full. And he said that when he went near his house, his little children ran outside and met him and greeted him and hugged him and kissed him. His wife kissed him as though nothing had ever happened and embraced him, and they came in the house. And then finally in the evening when they were in their bedroom alone, He had to relate to her the whole sordid story of what had happened. She was so stunned by it that she could not believe what her ears were hearing. She looked as though someone had took a whip and struck her in the face with it. He said she slumped against the wall and slid down to the floor, one shivering, sobbing, broken-hearted, crushed, peace of humanity. And he said, when I looked at my tears, looked at my wife in tears through my tears,
1: and I sat
0: down and begged her to forgive me, and she took my hand and kissed them, and told me that she would forgive me, and that our home would be kept, and that she would still love me. He said, for the first time in my life, I realized what it cost God to pay the price for my sins upon the cross. The creator who made it reconciles us to himself. He reconciles us to our neighbor. And he even reconciles us to the earth in which we live. We have, we have abused the earth in which we live. And he has reconciled us to it and given us responsibility to it. And he wishes us to use that responsibility more wisely and more well than we do. But he who has redeemed us will also give us the wisdom to walk in ways that will honor and please him. This is what the cross teaches us. The cross's lesson is not valid apart from the resurrection of Christ. That's why Paul had to say, if the resurrection is not true, then your faith is in vain. And above all men, we are most miserable. But it is true. And because it's true, we can sing these glad, joyous hymns. We can be reconciled to God and forgiven. We can be reconciled to ourselves. And we can be reconciled to one another. And we can be reconciled into the ethos, into the place he has given us to live. It's interesting in that last commandment that he gives to these disciples, he tells them to go into all the world and to preach to ethnots, to all the people in every race it has nothing to do with it. You preach to every single person. All ethnic people. That's the, the Greek word there. I found something out last week that I didn't know. There was a wealthy family in England that had an incredibly beautiful estate. They had a happy gathering that was almost plunged into a terrible tragedy on the first day because the children went swimming and one of them got into water that was too deep and began to drown. Fortunately, the gardener, a humble man, but a good man, was nearby. He heard the the screaming and he plunged immediately into the water and he went to the helpless, dying child and was able to withdraw that youngster from the water and get the water out of him and the breath back into him again. It's interesting that the little boy's name was Winston Churchill. His parents were wealthy, and they were deeply moved by what the gardener had done. And they asked if there was anything that they could possibly do for him. He was humble and hesitated to make a request, but he said that he had a very bright young boy of his own. That his boy wanted to go to medical school and to college, but he did not have the funds to send The Churchill family said, we'll take care of that. We'll pay his way. Years later, during World War II, in one of the most critical stages, Prime Minister Winston Churchill was stricken with pneumonia. It greatly concerned the king it greatly concerned his captain. They summoned the best physicians that they could find anywhere. And the doctor who saved his life was Sir Alexander Fleming, the one who developed penicillin. He was also the son of that gardener who had saved Winston Churchill from drowning as a little boy. Later, Churchill said, Rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. Well, what was rare in the case of the great English statesman is in a much deeper sense of wonderful reality of every believer in Christ. The Heavenly Father has given us the gift of physical life, and then through his Son, the great physician, he has imparted to us eternal life that takes away our sins and reconciles us unto him. Last night, I talked to someone on the phone who had spent 30 minutes speaking with Ronald Reagan by phone. The president, of course, is still ill. He explained all of the terrors of the Events that took place a couple of weeks ago and how that bullet that hit the civil service hit the Secret Service limousine had flattened and slithered through the crack in the door in the body of the car and it hit under the president's arm, his left arm. He said that it was in a circular way that had it been slicing through, it would have gone into his heart and he would have been dead immediately. That it stopped only three-quarters of an inch from his heart. That the particular hospital to which he was taken was a hospital where many gunshot victims were taken. And because of this, the surgeon was accustomed to probing for bullets. That bullet was a poisonous bullet. And had it remained in there, it could have still led to the death of the president. They couldn't find it. It was a tiny 22 caliber bullet. But the surgeon wasn't content with feeling for it. He had it x-rayed again and located it and extracted the deadly thing. And so the president's life was saved. And the president gave all the credit and the glory to God. He thanked God for sparing his life and wanted people to pray that God would enable him to use his life to his glory. There was a secret service agent named Timothy McCarthy who put his own body in front of the president and took a bullet that might well also have taken our president's life. And so, you see, life goes on this way Someone has to pay the cost. And there was no other good enough to pay the price or sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. May I say this in closing? I'll be leaving in just a few moments and you'll excuse me for not being able to go to the door. But for many of you, many in our congregation here in Montreat. This past year has been a year in which some of our loved ones have left this world and have gone to be with Jesus. And on this blessed day, when we think of the victory that Christ has gained for them, I cannot help but close in saying this. I often tell this to those who are sorrowing when a believer has gone to be with Jesus. The tears are natural. But waking up from this life's dream, the first sight that a believer sees when he leaves this life will be the face of Jesus. We shall see him as he is. All at once, no flight through immensity, no pilgrimage through the spheres, for the everlasting arms of the first resting place of our soul. It will be in the bosom of Emmanuel the one whom the angel called God with us, our Lord Jesus, that the spirit freed will inquire, where am I? And then we'll look in the face of Jesus and read the answer. You are forever with the Lord. And someone else whose name I've forgotten is said that those who know one another in the Lord never see one another for the last time. So this means that if we are to be forever with the Lord, we shall sometimes be with one another again. It is only by our hold on him that we keep our hold on those who have passed out of our sight across the sea or underneath the churchyard grass. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forevermore. Amen.